We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 2, and we shall read from verse 12, just to refresh our memories. Revelation, chapter 2, from verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And may the Lord bless again this uh, short reading of his word to us. We come to further consider the message that is sent to the church in Pergamos. As we've already sought to emphasize the condition of each one of these churches was somewhat different to the others. But we have to consider every single one of them and do so carefully because of the fact that we read at the end of each one of these what are referred to as the letters to the seven churches He that hath an ear, let him hear. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Throughout the ministry of the Savior, these were the words that he regularly used when he would speak a parable. He would often say, He that hath an ear, let him hear. And here he is addressing these churches and telling you and I right now, since you have got ears, you better give heed and you better listen carefully and you better lay to heart what is sent to these churches. And if you do find something similar in your own midst to the conditions 
that prevailed in these churches beware because the one who addresses them doesn't change his character in the 21st century. And thus, if he happens to have anything against one of these churches and we discover it in our midst, he has it equally against us. Therefore, we need to hear and we need to pay attention. Now, every one of these churches has particular characteristics. Uh, Some of the things that are happening in certain churches are repeated in others. In some of the churches, then, there are particular distinctive features that our attention is drawn to. Here in the church in Pergamos, there are good things, at least they were good in the past. But the glorified Lord makes it clear that he is concerned with what they are presently. That's very important. How many churches, how many assemblies here in Grafton today could go back to a very honorable history. And they could tell us how the church was established, how it came into existence, the great theological battles perhaps that took place, the man who stood solidly for the truth and defended the truth, and so on. And so often, it's all in the past. And you wouldn't recognize, you would not today recognize the present church as being what the past was. As we often say, some of the godly men that stood firm for the truth would turn in their graves today if they knew what began well has become. And here's the Savior. What does he say? He recognizes the faithfulness of the church in Pergamos. Verse 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Which we have noted how difficult it was for the church in Pergamos. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Thou hast not denied my faith. You have been true to me in Pergamos. You hold fast my name, and you have not denied my faith even in those days wherein Antipas, my faithful martyr, was slain among you. And they are highly commended because of this consistent faithfulness even unto death. And you can imagine, as you often do today in some 
older churches, you go in to see them and there are brass plaques on the wall or whatever in memory of Dr. So-and-so, Professor So-and-so, Reverend So-and-so, Elder So-and-so, because of the valuable contributions they made in the past to the establishing and the progress of the work of the gospel. And you can imagine Antipas, how he would be honored, how his name would be revered here in the church at Pergamos. Perhaps a generation would rise. They never knew him, but they knew all about him. And they're proud perhaps to belong to the church in Pergamos with such an honorable history. But what does the glorious head of the church say to them? But, but, I have a few things against thee. There's one thing that we ought to really admire about the Savior and love about him. His honesty and his frankness. He tells the truth straight. But I have a few things against thee that just would not fit today in this day of political correctness. That just doesn't fit. I have a few things against thee. Oh, that ought not to be. We don't hold anything against anyone. We're to love the brethren, aren't we? We're to overlook their faults. We're not to hold things against them. Isn't that what we hear? Oh, that's not Christian. To hold something against him? To hold something against her? To hold something against them? Ah, that's not Christian. Do you know what Jesus says here? The glorified Christ I have a few things against you. I hold them against you. This is the meek and the lowly Christ. And he's saying to the church in Pergamos, part of the church that he loves, the church that he bought with his own blood. And he says, though you have been faithful, you have produced a martyr in your midst, and others have suffered. But just because of that doesn't mean that I overlook what I disagree with. I actually hold certain things against you in Pergamos. What are these things? A few things. We might then sit back and think, well, that's not so bad after all. It's not many things. It's not a multitude of things. It's just a few things. Just a few things. 
we better read our Bibles carefully. Because what you hear constantly is a well. We can't agree with them in this. We wouldn't agree with that. There's a few things we wouldn't agree with. But it really doesn't matter. Few things shouldn't ever separate brethren. Few things shouldn't really upset the apple cart. Few things. That doesn't matter. A little doctrinal error here. A little practical error there. Just a few things. Isn't that what we hear? Isn't that what we hear about the churches? Isn't that what we hear about some of the churches here in Grafton? Well, they're not as reformed as they should be. They departed a little from their confession. They have introduced some new practices. But they're only little things. They really don't do anything to destroy the foundation. And though they have these innovations and these little digressions and these little deviations, they still have the core of the truth there. Isn't that the kind of thing we hear? Jesus, the glorified Christ, says to the church in Pergamos, Thou holdest fast my name. There are certain things that I acknowledge you refuse to compromise. Oh, you may go a little here and a little there, but I can see there are fundamental truths that you refuse to surrender. You hold tenaciously to them. Thou holdest Fast, not just holding, but holding fast, holding tenaciously, determined. This is one thing we refuse to surrender. We will not give this up. We are determined to hold this truth. And you will find again and again, I met it so often, Churches, ministers, office bearers. And they say, well, we've got the core truths. We refuse to give them up. Oh, we're tired of this happening. We're opposed to that happening. But we've still got the core truth. What does the Savior say to the church in Pergamos? I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them. There are certain people in the church in Pergamos that ought not to be there. I have a few things against thee because 
Thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, what is the Savior talking about? Doctrine. Doctrine. And nobody wants to hear about doctrine today. No, no. Fellowship. That's what we want to hear about. Fellowship. Not doctrine. Love. Not doctrine. We want nice, warm feelings. We don't want doctrine. Here's what Christ, the glorious head, says to the church in Pergamos. I have a few things against thee. Because there are certain people in the church in Pergamos who hold false doctrine. Well, surely that can't be too bad. It's not everybody who's holding this false doctrine. It's just some. The, her, the majority in the church in Pergamos, they're sound. They're holding to the faith. They refuse to give it up. But the church in Pergamos is feeling the head of the church. It is not maintaining discipline in its midst. Where are we today anyway? We look around the churches today, no discipline, no order. Everyone, think as you like, speak as you like, act as you like, believe what you like if you want to believe anything. And here is the church in Pergamos. And if you were to go up to the church in Pergamos, you're looking for somewhere to worship. You've come on holiday. You've, you've come to visit in Pergamos. You go and you read the church notice board to see, will this be a suitable place to worship? The church in Pergamos, the accommodating church. The accommodating church. You'll be thinking, well, there's room for us in here. It's accommodating, so we don't have to worry about what we believe here. We don't have to concern ourselves about what we practice. We'll fit in here perfectly. Because they allow you to come here, and you don't have to agree with them in everything. You don't have to practice what they believe is right. You can come and believe whatever you want, and you're still welcome. Thou hast those that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. 
to eat things sacrificed unto idols and commit fornication. Now, if the majority were doing that, you'd be thinking this is no church at all. This is the synagogue of Satan. But there are a minority who believe this. There are a minority who hold to false doctrine. And false doctrine produces false practice. You go back to the church in Ephesus. And what uh, does the glorified Christ say there to the Ephesian church, verse 6 of chapter 2, This thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The deeds. You hate their conduct, and that's to your credit. They have infiltrated the church, and they have brought their false practices into the church, but at Ephesus, it is to be commended that you hate their deeds. Now here in the church in Pergamos, it isn't a matter of their deeds. It's their very doctrine that is being taught. Some are holding to their doctrine. Not many, perhaps, But it is dangerous. We read from that chapter in the epistle that Paul writes to the, uh, to Titus for a reason. Uh, The epistles to Timothy and Titus are what we refer to as pastoral epistles because they are written to pastors or bishops in the early church, Timothy and Titus who have responsibilities for the government and the discipline and the order, as well as the teaching, wherever they are established. Now these are going to, as it were, replace Paul and the apostles when they've gone. And here you have, uh, in these uh, pastoral epistles, Paul emphasizing important matters, and one thing is very, very clear. The importance of doctrine. Now, doctrine, you don't have to become alarmed. Uh, Scripturally, it just means teaching. Sound doctrine, sound teaching, sound instruction. Jesus, when he sent the apostles out into the world, he said they were to go into all the world, teaching men to observe all things whatsoever he had commanded. He didn't say, well, if you go to Scotland, yes, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded. If you happen to go to Australia, teach them to observe 80% of what I've commanded. If you go to Africa, well, you could reduce it to 60%, and so on. Go into all the world and set the same standard for the universal church everywhere. 
I require the church to apply itself in obedience to be conformed to everything that I teach. My doctrine, my faith, my truth. And here is Paul, first of all, in First Timothy, in the first chapter, He's speaking about the place of the law and uh, the purpose of it. And in uh, verse 9 of 1 Timothy 1, he says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for man-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, in the context, shouldn't it be obvious? Paul's telling Timothy, False doctrine produces false practice. Sound doctrine produces sound practice. Now you might look around the church today and say, well, there's this branch and there's that branch. Wonder what they believe. Let's look up their website. Oh, they, they, their office bearers subscribe to the confession of faith. They believe this, they believe that. You'll see often time what we believe. What we practice is what we believe. <coughs> because, you see, we may have the theory. But if it's not practiced, it's obvious we really don't believe it. You and I practice what we believe to be right. And when men say, oh, we've subscribed to the confession of faith, we've subscribed to this creed, we profess that creed, well, I want to see what do you really believe, not what you've subscribed to, not what you profess. I want to know what you believe, and I will know what you believe by what you practice, because doctrine produces the practice. Again, you, 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 you see in the second epistle that Paul writes to Timothy in the fourth chapter there. <coughs> Paul is writing to Timothy about developments that Timothy is going to have to confront. And he says, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Doctrines of devils. That's nearly incredible, isn't it? Doctrines of devils. And Timothy's not out in the world, he's in the church. 
And he's being told by Paul the days are coming when they'll actually introduce into the very church the doctrines of devils. The devil will have infiltrated to such an extent that they'll be teaching devilish doctrines. I tell you, Paul knew what he was talking about. You just have to look at the development of popery and the Church of Rome and all its doctrines of devils that are taught and believed. And uh, Paul then tells Timothy, your duty when this is happening is to hold fast to sound doctrine. He tells Titus the same thing. As others depart from the truth, so you hold to it. Uh, Paul tells Timothy in the uh, same chapter 4, verse 2, they shall be speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, and uh, so on. And then what does uh, Paul tell Timothy to do? Refuse, uh, verse 7, profane and old wife's fables, and exercise thyself unto godliness. How is he going to do that? Verse 6, if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things. Don't you hear people? They're so clever. They're so confident. Nearly arrogant. Oh, you don't need to tell us that. We know all that. You don't need to remind us of that. That happened in the 16th century. You don't have to remind us of that. That happened in, in the 19th century and so on. Paul says, Timothy, if you want to be a good and a faithful minister, you put the brethren in remembrance of these things. What things? Compromise, the doctrines of devils, error, creeping into the church. You keep reminding my people of the danger of this kind of thing. And we shall see in a moment that the devil has lots of experience down through the century. And he has learned certain tactics really do work. And even though they work so well, the church doesn't even seem to learn. And so the devil comes up and he uses it again and again as we shall see. But the point we're making is this. Sound doctrine. You want to know as a minister, a good minister, Oh, he's a nice minister. See the way he holds his cup of tea. See how he, how delicately he sips it, how nice he is. See the lovely manners he's got. His doctrine. 
That's what's important. His doctrine. That's vital. And it matters not how nice he is. Or how well thought of. If his doctrine is not biblical doctrine. He's just simply a failure. That's all he is. Sound doctrine. Whenever Paul then writes to uh, Titus, uh, he tells him there in the first chapter, verse 9, what a bishop is to be, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Sound doctrine. Previously in the fourth chapter of Second Timothy, I should have mentioned it, I charge thee, Paul says, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. One wonders what would happen if the Apostle Paul were appointed as a professor to teach divinity students in some of the seminaries and colleges of today. Preach the word, gentlemen, but be careful. Uh, Be very careful. You don't need to reprove. And you certainly don't need to rebuke. We don't do that kind of thing today. We win people. We applaud people. We pat people in the back. We give them hugs and kisses. We do not rebuke people. We leave that to the Holy Spirit. Paul says, Timothy, I'm charging you before God. When there's sin in the church, you better rebuke it. And if there are people responsible for it, rebuke them. Rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They won't even endure it. They'll pack their bags and they'll say, we're away, we're away, Timothy. We're going to join a nice church. We're going to have a nice minister. That's what Paul is telling Timothy is his responsibility. And then in uh, getting eventually to Titus, he is to hold sound doctrine. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, where we read from earlier, Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Speak. You want to weigh a man up? What does he believe? Well, listen to what he says. Speak. People say, 
Very often, too, what you will discover is this. You don't just listen to what a man has to say. You listen to what he leaves out. And that's how you'll discover where he really stands. Wasn't it wonderful? I hear, wasn't it wonderful? He spoke about the blood. Isn't that wonderful? He referred to people being saved. Isn't that great? What did he leave out? What did he not tell them? Why did he not tell them about sin? Why did he not tell them about repentance? Why did he not tell them about a broken heart expressing repentance? Why? Why did he leave so much out? I think a lot of professing Christians have become so gullible today. You could tell them nearly anything. All you have to say is Jesus. Ah, that's wonderful. You know, the man talked about Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. And what becomes sound doctrine? Sound practice. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate. Sound doctrine applies in daily life. Speak it by way of application. And if the people are going out after they've listened to you, Titus, and they're scratching their heads, and they're thinking, what was he talking about? There's plenty of doctrine, but it doesn't seem to have much of an application. I don't think it's requiring very much of me. The aged men going from under the ministry of Titus are going to be pondering what they've heard, knowing this teaching that we heard expects us to apply it and we are to be sober. You imagine family sitting around the table, they've been at the assembly, Titus has been preaching to them, a little fellow looks up, Grandpa, what was the minister saying today? What was this message about? Well, from what I heard, God requires me to be sober, to be grave, to be temperate, to be sound in the faith. Speak thou the things that make people think and change their practice and make them godly. Doctrine is absolutely vital. Now, here are these in the church in Pergamos. There may not be many of them, 
But they are a threat to the church in Pergamos. They are a real danger. So much so that the glorified Christ says in verse 16, repent. What will happen if the church in Pergamos doesn't repent? Repent or else. This is the alternative. You can choose yourselves and Pergamos what you want. Either, either you repent and get the business sorted out, or else I'll be coming to visit you. And I will be coming unto thee in haste. Because although there may be a few things and they may not seem dangerous to you, I will come in haste, and I will come quickly, and I will deal with them. You don't deal with them, I'll deal with them. And what will I do? I will fight against them. Here is a declaration of war. The meek and lowly Jesus declares war against persons in the church in Pergamos. Ah, but you can imagine, well, you know, some of these people, they're very nice people, very kind. We've been in their homes, you know, and they're, they're very charitable. We can't agree with what they believe, but it doesn't matter. They're nice people. Furthermore, you know, they really give well to support the church in Pergamos. And if they were to leave, we would miss their collections. You know, they're great financial supporters of the church in Pergamos. So we don't want to be too severe. We want to be tolerant. We want to be accommodating. Jesus says, Repent. Or else, I will come unto thee quickly. Do we really think those two little words, repent or else? Or else. Are they inspired, do you think? Do you think we should take them seriously? Or else. Oh, well, that's not much doctrine in that. Or else, just two little simple words. Or else. That's the alternative. You straighten things out. You repent. You put things right. On the other hand, if you don't, expect a visitation from me, and I will declare war on those persons in the church in Pergamos who hold the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now it is believed that in reality these are just the same people, the same persons holding the same views, the same errors. They were holding to practices of pure immorality. 
believed that the the women in the community were shared among the men. They went to the festivals of the idol gods. They partook of the meals with the worshippers of idols and so on. But look at what Christ has to say to the church in Pergamos. Verse 14 again. I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now go back. Verse 13. Thou holdest fast my name. Thou holdest fast. And if you were to meet some of these people in Pergamos, they can categorically say, we're holding fast to this truth. No compromise whatever. But then, there are people in the same ecclesiastical community in Pergamos, and they are holding something else. And they are adhering to something contrary Very contrary, in fact. What is it? If you go back with me to the book of Numbers, well, before we go, thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. What? The children of Israel were going away back in history. Here's the church, the Gentile church in Pergamos, and here's the head of the church talking to the uh, church here in Pergamos about Israel and events away, way centuries ago. What's the relevance? Because the tactics that the devil used and was successful in the use of them back in Israel's history He's using them again. They work. And the church doesn't seem to remember that they work. Go back with me then to the book of Numbers, uh, back to the chapter 22. Uh, You will see uh, that the children of Israel... They come up against the Moabites, the king of Moab. And without going into all the history, the king, the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian, and they did not appreciate Israel one little bit, and they didn't want Israel trespassing into their land and so on. And so uh, what did the king do? He decided he would call upon Balaam to come and curse the people of God, to curse the Israel of God. Verse 10 of Numbers 22, Balaam said unto God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt which covereth the face of the earth, and 
He didn't like that. Balak didn't like it one little bit. These people are a threat. This people, Israel, they're a threat. So he calls up Balaam, you come and curse this people. And of course, the long and the short of it is, God would not allow this to happen. We read, Balaam rose, uh, verse 12 of the same chapter, God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them, thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. And without going into it all, you find that Balak tried several ways to get uh, Balaam to curse the people of God. And God forbade it every time. Balak would try different tech, uh, tactics, and it still didn't work. And he would build altars, and he would come, well, come, look at them from this direction. Then you'll see a different sight of them, and you'll be able to curse them then. And it never worked. He just couldn't curse them. God refused to allow it. And then, chapter 23, you see how, again, Balak does everything in his power to persuade Balaam, you must curse this people for me. And he, he couldn't do it. So what happens then? We go to verse, chapter 25. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to, mit, to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. You can't curse them because they're blessed. You can't destroy them because they're my people and they're blessed. So what now then is the way that the devil works to corrupt this people Israel abode in Shittim the blessed people who can't be cursed and they began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab wasn't it the king of Moab wasn't it the Moabites who wanted this people cursed, who were at enmity with them, who wanted them destroyed? And that couldn't happen. So now the devil says, instead of cursing them, entice them. Don't try cursing them anymore. That doesn't work. Instead, Draw them into fellowship. Draw them into friendship. Marry in among them. That's what happened. Look at chapter 31, verse 15, to see the connection. Moses uh, said unto them, Have ye saved all the women alive? What woman are these? These are the Moabites. 
and you go back up through the chapter, you'll see what happens because of this, uh, these bonds that have developed, these Israelites taking these Moabitish women, bringing their idolatry, bringing their festivities, bringing their immoral practices in among the children of Israel. And what we're <coughs> told is that a plague breaks out among them. And uh, Moses has to call for a slaughtering of these people because they are going to destroy Israel. Balaam can't curse them to please the Moabites. But the Moabites now have got right in among them. And the Moabites now have corrupted them. And you'll see that verse 16, uh, Numbers 31, verse 15, Moses said unto them, Have ye saved all the women alive? Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Ah, Balaam, I'm sorry, Balak, I can't curse them. So stop trying to curse them, Balaam, because God has blessed them. Stop trying to destroy them, because you'll not succeed. But I'll tell you what to do, Balak. Drop the hostility. Become friends. And all will be fine. What do we read here in the book of the Revelation? I have a few things against thee. Because you've withstood the opposition, my faithful martyr Antipas was prepared to lay down his life for the truth. But now a little leaven has come in. A little leaven. And if you don't deal with it, it's going to destroy the whole church in Pergamos. The devil knows when he can't succeed through opposing the church from outside. The best thing to do is draw into it them who will corrupt it. That's what Balaam did. That's the advice he obviously gave Balaam. Don't be hostile, Balaam. Don't be at enmity. Make friends. And then everything will be pleasing. Isn't that what's going on in the ecumenical movement and spirit of this generation? The devil knows. I have fought and I've persecuted and I've opposed, and I've warred against the church, and I've risen atheists, and I've written, risen skeptics, and I've risen every kind of opposition. 
and the fires have burned to destroy the godly. The gallows have taken the lives of many of the saintly. And yet the church goes on in opposition, standing firm in the truth. Persecution doesn't work. So what will we do? We'll change our tactic. We'll befriend the world. We'll introduce some practices that the world will appreciate and stop opposing us because they can see we're not so different after all. That's what happened here in Pergamos. You would think when the church in Pergamos would read the Old Testament, read the scriptures, wouldn't they learn, wouldn't they know, but ah, the devil knows. (laughs) I can use this tactic because it works. It succeeds every time. Instead of the world fighting the church, let the world come into the church and all will be fine. And that's what happened. And you know what Christ says? I hold this against you. A little leaven. You can see, you go, for example, to the first epistle that Paul writes to the Corinthians there in chapter 5. You see, there... Immorality reported to Paul taking place in the church at Corinth. And we have reason to believe it's the same sin that's being committed. These, the, the, the sins of, uh, that was introduced by Balaam, the sins of the Nicolaitans in Corinth. And what does Paul write to, to them? Uh, they've got to deal with this. Uh, immorality, this corruption in the church in Corinth. And he says in verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. A little leaven. You just need a little of it. What do people say? Well, a little. It's not going to do you a lot of harm, is it? It's going to do a lot of damage, is it? Here's the church in Pergamos and real danger. And what does Christ say? Which thing I hate, these are his own words. These were things in the church. And he hated them. And he hated them so much, he declared war against them. I tell you, I wouldn't want to be in the church in Pergamos when that war would start. Because although the glorious Christ is not out to destroy the church in Pergamos, And he commends those who have stood faithful to the truth. He is going to come, he says, with the sword of his mouth. He's going to come with his truth. 
and he's going to destroy these and their doctrine. Now you might say, how is he going to do that? Is he going to come in person? Of course not. But he has been shown as the one who has the sharp sword with two edges, and it is out of his mouth in chapter 1 that that sword appears. It's the word of his truth. And what is the glorious Christ really saying? How do we interpret this? I will come with the sword of my truth. And I will smite these, I will raise up somewhere, somehow, those who will expose these errors and this falsehood if you will not do it. And here you see the seriousness of the position of the church here in Pergamos. And you may ask, well, how would, why would Christ speak in strong language like this? These things I hate. I hate them. Why do you not hate them? When I hit them, why is it you tolerate them? Well, he hits them because, first of all, he's the very God of truth. So he naturally hits everything that is false and everything that's not truth. Secondly, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And hasn't this happened again and again throughout the professing church? Well, these people believe this. But we'll keep it a little secret. We don't want people to know about it. They believe this. It's erroneous. So we don't want anyone to know about it. You can't hide anything from Christ. I know what's going on in Pergamos. And I know what's happening. And I know the leaven's working. But also another reason why he says, which things I eat is because it damages the reputation of the church in Pergamos. You just think. Translate the church in Pergamos into Grafton. And someone comes along and says to you, what do you people believe in Grafton? Oh, well, we believe this, we believe that. We, we subscribe to the confession. All our ministers, all our elders, they all believe the same thing. They all subscribe to the same thing. We sing the Psalms. We keep the Sabbath and so on. Oh. Where's your church? If it's Roy Street. Ah, yes, 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 yes. 
My neighbor goes to that church. Oh dear. Don't think I'll be coming. Why? Well, my neighbor goes. And I know what my neighbor does. And I know the way my neighbor lives. And I know what my neighbor believes. So if that's what you believe in your church, I won't be coming. What is Christ saying? You have in the church in Pergamos those who are letting down your witness, who are presenting to the world a false witness and a false testimony because you imagine one of these people sitting around the table. We're of the school of the Nicolaitans. We are Christians. We go to the church in Pergamos. We're Christians. Oh. And that's the church you go to. Oh, yeah. Must be a strange church. I read my Bible. I study the Word of God, and I do not want to be associated with that kind of conduct and those doctrines. You see why Jesus said, These things I hate. I hate my name and my cause being dragged down into the gutter even by a minority who hold a falsehood and who hold to error. Because I hate them, I will fight against them. I hate them. The meek and the lowly Jesus, stating categorically that no one will be confused, these things I hate. You would think today, listening to the majority of people talking about Jesus, he doesn't really hate anything. He just loves everything and everybody and doesn't matter. He just loves everything. I hate and I will fight and I will war against what I hate. These are messages to the churches that we are to listen to. And we need the grace of God. We've come to the end of another year. And God has been good to us. And God has kept us and preserved us and provided for us. We owe it to him to do everything within our power to maintain a pure biblical witness with theology that is according to Scripture. And we need to be willing to be rebuked. And we need to be willing to be exhorted. And we need to go home like those listening to Titus or Timothy and and, uh, ask ourselves, now what did the word of God say to me today? What does God want me to listen to? What have I to lay to heart? There's one thing that is as clear as clear as crystal. You cannot read these letters to the churches without seeing one thing standing out, the head of the church. 
desires and requires consistency. Consistency. And may God grant us grace to be consistent. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we bless thee for the church of Christ throughout the world. And yet we have to recognize the many feelings, blemishes, shortcomings, error everywhere. We cry to thee to come and reform thy church. Bring us back to thy word that we would fear and dread the intrusion of error or falsehood into our doctrine or into our practice. O keep us faithful, we pray, to thy holy truth. Apply thy word, pardon our sins now and receive us. For Christ's sake, amen.